Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina. And on this show, you're going to hear from lots of different people about the books that they love most. The books that have made them who they are, that they've carried with them through all sorts of times, good and bad, that they turn to for solace or pleasure or companionship. This is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. So if you love books, I hope you'll tune in each week to discover new titles, hear from kindred spirits, and celebrate this wonderful art form. This week, we'll be launching the show with two episodes, including this premiere episode on which you'll hear a recent conversation with one of North Carolina's most beloved writers, Ron Rash. Ron is an American poet, short story writer, and novelist, and he's the Paris Distinguished Professor in Appalachian Cultural Studies at Western Carolina University. He's the author of multiple collections of short stories, including most notably Burning Bright and Something Rich and Strange. And he is perhaps best known for his novels Serena, which he published in 2008, and The Cove, which was published in 2012, and then 2020's In the Valley, which are stories and a novella based on Serena. He has won the Sherwood Anderson Prize, the Appalachian Book of the Year in 2002, the Fiction Book of the Year by the Southern Book Critics Circle in 2004, He's won the James Still Award from the Fellowship of Southern Writers in 2005. And twice he has been a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. He's been anthologized many times, including in the Best American Short Stories of 2010 and in the 2018 edition of the Best American Short Stories. He has also been inducted into the South Carolina Academy of Authors. He is one of our very best writers in the Carolinas and the ideal guest to launch a podcast out of a North Carolina bookshop. When we knew we were launching this podcast, we always knew we wanted Ron Rash to be the first guest on this show. So without further ado, I'm going to get you over to my conversation with Ron. Thanks so much for listening to Bibliography, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Ron Rash, thank you so much for uh, being our guinea pig, being the, coming on the first episode of, of this podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm honored to do so. Uh, independent bookstores have been crucial to me and my work. Mm. And anytime I can help one out, I'm certainly glad to. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, around here, you're like a legend almost. People come in and they talk about your books in hushed tones. <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, one of the things I want to ask you to start, I've, I've got a couple questions that we'll see where they take us. But the first thing I want to ask every guest who comes on this episode is this question. All right, every guest who comes on this podcast, rather. Do you remember the first time that you fell in love with a book? Like when, maybe when you were a kid, like it just swept you away and it just maybe, maybe it stuck with you. Wow. I think maybe Tom Sawyer mm. actually wasn't, you know, uh, that precocious reader, but the book that I remember, I, I read Call of the Wild when I was in the fourth grade. And that, mm. I remember that book really, you know, I'd read Hardy Boys, you know, I, I'd read the kind of things that yeah. a kid reads, but I just kind of, that book kind of took me to a level that I hadn't been before. Mm. Uh, that, that was certainly one of the early books and and some of Poe's short stories, mm. which uh, was a sign of where my own work was going. <laughs> but but I, I, those are particularly memorable when I was you know, 10 to 12, nine, you know, 9, 10, whatever. You know you wanted to be a writer at that age? No, no. And uh, it's so interesting because most of my friends who are writers, um, including two of our best, Jill McCorkle and Lee Smith, um, they knew they were going to be writers very early on. I mean, even in elementary school. Mm. And uh, 
I wasn't that way, but I think I was showing the symptoms. Uh, I'm an introvert, uh, very comfortable being by myself uh, yeah. out in the woods. You know, mm. I love just kind of going out uh, and I was reading and, and I, you know, I was always a voracious reader. So I think um, I was working my way toward it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned like being outside, being by yourself. Do you think that's why books like Tom Sawyer and Call the Wild were appealing to you? Yeah. I think that was part of it, just that sense of, you know, what, what, what's it like for people once they kind of escape those boundaries uh, yeah. and go out. Uh, Huckleberry Finn, obviously, even more so yeah. than Tom Sawyer, because yeah. that's the book about somebody going out. But, uh, yeah, I've always been in, interested in nature. And, and so, uh, yeah, London certainly fit that. Did you uh, did you read a lot of adventure books? I mean, was that like a big... I mean, you mentioned Hard, The Hardy Boys. Um, yeah. Yeah, I... Uh, I did. Uh, I can remember uh, reading I, I, when I was uh, my hobby when I was like, uh, I guess, from the age six to. Well, it's still in a way I'm, uh, it, it was snakes. I love to catch snakes. <laughs> and so I would read these books uh, about snakes. I was trying to get my family to move to Australia because they had like you know, 20 different poisonous snakes. And uh, You sound like my nine year old. I wanted to see and. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite think that was a good idea. <laughs> but yeah, but I love to read books about animals and yeah. and, uh, and I continue to. I, I mean, I actually just reading the book about the uh, last book I guess I read was about Siberian tigers. Hmm. Do you do you um do you read more nonfiction or fiction? I'm just curious. Just as I mean, I read, you write a lot of fiction, but yeah, I uh, I do. I, I found as I get older, I, it balances out about half and half. Uh, okay. uh, I, I've recently read couple of novels, uh, but also read a book uh, about the Shining Path, uh, uh, the group in South America. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm very interested in history as well. So, yeah, I, I go to different places, but um, I think the one thing I always want is, is good writing. And yeah. uh, uh, you can get that. You know, some of my favorite writers are actually nonfiction writers uh, who just really uh, know how to tell a story or, or just have, you know, real, real good language. So for you, uh, you're talking about good language. Were, were you, so were you, did you come from a family of readers and storytellers? Yeah, I, I did. I, I, you know, I kind of got that Southern cliche. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is something to it. Uh, yeah. You know, sit, you know, my, my generation was probably the last generation to grow up pretty much, um, at least in my family, without air conditioning. So people yeah. were out yeah. on the porch and yeah. they really would do that. And I spent yeah. a lot of time with my grandmother and, and you know, there was a lot of storytelling going on. And But also uh, my parents uh, were first-generation college uh, people. Uh, they actually met at a cotton mill, in a cotton mill. Uh, both were Appalachian families who come, and this is, you know, Concord certainly is a place that would be aware of this, you know, that. Yeah into the mills. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather couldn't read and write on that side, on my dad's side, but uh, they they were very uh, driven and uh, they both ended up being teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, they went back to school. Uh, my mom in her late 30s, my dad in his mid-20s. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, I mean, he first he had to get a GED because he dropped out of high school. And, uh, but but I, what that did was I, we, we, we never had a lot of money because uh, there were student debts, you know, and they yeah. kind of started late. And I mean, we weren't poverty stricken, but we were doing okay. But uh, there were always books in the house. Hmm. And I would notice 
when I'd go to my friends' houses, uh, they weren't there. And we were always encouraged to read. And and so I think that, yeah, I think having both those elements, you know, that sense of a story. And my family has very deep roots in, you know, a couple of centuries in the uh, Western mountains around mm-hmm. Asheville and Boone, knowing that. And so, yeah, so some of the stories passed on, but also uh, parents who valued reading. Mm. Do they read? Do they read out loud to you? I don't remember that. Uh, I think it was more just the books were there. Uh, yeah. Parents either had a lot of faith in us, or <laughs> maybe just I don't know. But 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 uh, certainly we were encouraged. And I will say this: uh, my mom would always every week she'd take us to the library. Mm. That that actually is one of my most memorable. Uh, experiences growing up was just getting to walk into this library and all mm-hmm. the books and uh, just being able to uh, to uh, have that kind of freedom uh, mm-hmm. to choose. And they, they never tried to tell us what to read or what not to read. So did you, you know, as you were working towards becoming a writer and that started becoming something that you wanted to do with your life, were there books that you point to and you can say, I mean, I mean, I know, I know you mentioned like the Jack London and the nature stuff, but as you were getting a little older, were there books that, you know, you picked it up and you were like, I want to do that. You know, yeah. I want to put sentences together like that. I want to make someone feel that way when they're reading a book. Yeah. Well, I, I had an experience uh, when I was about 15 where I, I read Dostoevsky. Oh, wow. And, and I, I didn't read him on the level I would now, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which one? That, uh, it was crime and punishment. Okay. But what happened was, I've told this story before, but it, it really was this kind of almost transcendent moment. Mm. Um, you know, I was about on page 70 or 80 where Raskolnikov kills the pawnbroker. And it's a very vivid scene. Mm-hmm. And I just remember uh, I was actually making a D in biology uh, on the back <laughs> row reading this. And it was like uh, for the first time, it wasn't that I'd entered a book, a book had entered me. I mean, I just, it, it just felt so real. And, uh, but, but I, I think the book, that one certainly was important, but also not surprisingly, Look Homeward Angel. Hmm. You know, reading that a little bit later, I think I was probably 17 or Thomas Wolfe book, right? Yeah, Thomas yeah, Wolfe, yeah. Asheville, you know, growing, yeah. you know, growing, he was only 50, 60 miles from where I was living, uh, Asheville was. Uh, and, and just that, you know, that is a, a book about an artist, you know, uh, becoming an artist, a building with Roman, uh, the Germans would say. So that book was crucial. I think it was crucial in, in the sense that it, it helped me realize, well, somebody from this area can do this. Uh, you don't have yeah. to be born in Russia. <laughs> yeah. Or, or New York City. Nor New York. Yeah, yeah. L.A., whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and I think uh, so that book was very important. And. Uh, he, he continues to be a writer I greatly admire. I think uh, that book was a real experience reading that first time. Do you, as you were getting started, and maybe even still today, did you feel like you wanted to participate or help form a North Carolina like literature, like a, like a sort of canon that is specific to this place? Do you want to participate in something like that consciously? But yeah, I think so. I think I was very lucky in that Fred Chapel, Lee mm-hmm. Smith, uh, Robert Morgan were John Ely, a writer we don't talk enough about, a really fine North Carolina writer. Um, they 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 were inspiring. Uh, I mean, they showed me you know showed us showed me the possibilities. But um, I think also I really wanted to emphasize uh, uh, 
you know, Western North Carolina and that area where my family had been. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Morgan and Chapel and Lee Smith actually grew up uh, uh, over the, the Virginia line, but still in, you know, the Appalachians. And, yeah. uh, but, but yeah, I, you know, I hope to do not just to mimic them, but to uh, do, do some things uh, a little different. Um, yeah. How so? Like, what are you, what are you trying to do? That's a little different. Well, I think uh, with Serena, I really wanted to write a book uh, that would deal with uh, environmental issues, but also really, in a sense, show something I think that really had an impact on uh, the Appalachia today. You know, just that idea yeah. of always uh, the idea that things were being taken out, you know, uh, by the rest of the country. Uh, and, you know, and and so partly that uh, I think, um, and I'm not saying these other writers didn't do it, but uh, uh, the vernacular I heard, I did that in one foot in the evening. I really wanted to get that, and I think also consciously, maybe more, maybe this is a little bit different. I I really wanted to use uh, the setting I had in Western North Carolina as a kind of emblematic of something that was much larger. Um, for instance, when I wrote The World Made Straight, I really was looking at, uh, I wanted that to be a microcosm, that book about what happens when uh, people and cultures turn against each other, uh, whether it's Cambodia, Rwanda, Germany. And so, you know, using the local to address these these issues that certainly yeah. transcend the, the place, uh, certainly environmental issues worldwide in Serena, um, uh, the idea of... Uh, cultures disappearing uh, uh, in one foot need. And so I always had in the back of my head the, these larger concerns that I was, you know, worldwide. Uh, Do you have concerns about the disappearance of the culture that you grew up in in North Carolina? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the impulses that uh, for my writing about it, um, particularly when I write in the past. But, uh, yeah. I think that's the way we retain a culture is through memory. And sometimes that memory can be mm. through books. Uh, mm. I, I think that's an impulse for a lot of art. That's we don't want something to disappear. Mm. So one of the things that you were talking about, as you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, an author who we don't talk about enough. And it seems like part of that remembering is keeping writers who maybe don't get talked about enough front and center. So, you know, you've mentioned names like, Lee Smith and um, Fred Chapel, and you know, maybe we could mention Charles Frazier, and there's a number of other writers from the region. Who are some other writers? You said John Ely, I think. Who, who are some other ones that don't get talked about enough? Maybe, maybe a couple novels or something like that, or a short story collection or two that you would say, if you've not read these people and you want to understand what this sort of canon of North Carolina or South Carolina, you know, Carolina literature or even Appalachian literature is, you have to read these people, even though they don't get talked about enough. Well, John Ely, I think, is a, a great example. His daughter, Jennifer Ely, who's pretty mm-hmm. well an actress. Mm-hmm. But um, I think what well, Ely, what I admire about his work is he was writing about the North Carolina mountains, but he deals with the uh, essentially the, the middle class. A lot of his books are about that small town and it's not the you know the kind of uh, what we too maybe too often expect with books coming out of the region you know very poor people or, or yeah people. Uh, so he shows I think he shows an important aspect of the culture uh, he's certainly I think of uh, another writer from that area Jim Wayne Miller a writer that 
I think a, a lot of people in North Carolina know, but uh, probably don't appreciate, and he's not as appreciated, I think, nationally as it should be, as Randall Keenan, who died just about a year ago. Uh, real loss. Yeah. Um, and I think he he would be certainly be somebody I think is very important. But 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 those are the ones that just right off. I'm sure I'm leaving out so many really great writers. I always hate yeah. this because I know I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry leave. to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, well, I do this to my students. You know, <laughs> so I ask them. I say, I know you hate this question, but it it does leave. Yeah, yeah and and I think that's one thing that. It's interesting to me that a lot of times when writers get together, we we don't want to talk about writing or our writing, but but we do enjoy talking about books that we admire writers. And, and mm. so all, it's so wonderful because I, they lead me to writers that I wouldn't have read. Mm. What are, you mentioned you're teaching. What are some of the, your favorite things to teach? <sighs> well, I always start my classes off uh, with a Flannery O'Connor short story. Which uh, one? I, she's a uh, good man. It's hard to find. Uh, I think that's as perfect a short story as I know. And it's such a great story to teach because you can really talk about the architecture of a story, really looking at it, you know, inside out. And uh, O'Connor's such a gifted writer. I mean, I think the short stories, uh, I would put her, personally, uh, her stories mean more to me than any other American writer. Mm-hmm. Is that is that your favorite one then? I mean, you said it's the one you like yeah. to teach. It's your personal favorite as well. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I really believe that it's probably as seamless uh, stories I know. I mean, and, and it keeps surprising me. I probably read it twenty five times, and there's always something that maybe I've forgotten, but 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 it just hits me again how well done it is. Uh, yeah, and she's. Yeah, she's she's really important. Actually, in my office where I write, I've got a photograph of her frowning at me. She's you know she's kind of right above me, looming over me. <laughs> Have you been reminding too- me? I'm not. You're not good enough yet, but <laughs> <laughs> keep keep trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep trying. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, so, have you been to her her house down in Milledgeville? Uh, uh, I have not been there. I've been to the one in Savannah. Okay. Yeah. Which in some ways I think says so much about her because it, it, it actually, you look out from the window of her bedroom and you see the street, you know, a, a town square. So she would see all of the people there, mm. but there's also a church mm. that you can see from there as well. And just that, I mean, to me that I can just see her looking down on those people because she was so tough on us as human beings. Yeah. yeah. Yet at that same time, that church being there too. Mm. Yeah. Hovering over the, over yeah. what she's seen as well. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting too, that she, you know, the Savannah house was her, that was when she was younger, right? Her childhood. Yeah. Her, yeah. yeah. Childhood. House. <clears throat> and then of course she ends up, she ends up getting sick and having to move out to Milledgeville. Yeah. So she could have, she had this, you know, this beautiful Southern city and then she ends up in this small town out in the country. Um, yeah. And you see both of those, you see characters from both of those worlds show up so clearly. She just had this ability to like, it, there wasn't one type of person that she could create a character of. Right. She, so many different varieties of people were, and none of them felt incomplete. Yeah, no, she's she's amazing. Uh, and to have done that so young, I mean, she died yeah. at 39. If yeah. Was, and then, yeah. You know, most of her best work was probably 25 to 35. So, you know, a lot of people have, have trouble with, with her work. They just feel like it's a little bleak, a little, little dark. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, the end of that particular story you're talking about. Yeah. Um, how do you, when you're teaching that and you get that sort of 
that look that students give you, like, what have you just put us through? How do you, I mean, you don't have to give me, don't give me your class notes, don't give me a lecture, but do you have just kind of a few bullet points on how you would encourage people who maybe read her in the past and were just kind of said to themselves, what is going on here? I don't think this is for me. What would you say to someone like that? Well, I think one aspect of a work that a lot of people don't recognize uh, is the religious aspect of it. She was a devout Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that certainly comes through. And even in a story such as A Good Man's Hard to Find, uh, there seems to be a moment. Uh, and O'Connor wrote an essay saying this is exactly what she, she wanted her reader to get a sense that uh, in that story, the grandmother has a moment of grace. And that even the misfit uh, at the end of the story uh, earlier, he said the only pleasure in life is meanness. But at the end of the story, he says uh, there ain't no pleasure in life. That maybe something's happened there. Um, you know, but uh, it, it's always an interesting test, I think, uh, because I find her hilarious. And even in that story. Yeah, likewise. And, you know, a lot of people don't. A lot of people are just merely horrified at that humor. But also it gives me a chance to talk about, you know, why so much literature seems to be about the worst things, hmm. uh, about dark, you know, the, the, when the bad things happen, not the good things. And uh, but the answer that I give my students, and I think they've already figured this out for the most part, is that uh, it's only in extreme, care, in, in extreme moments that uh, a person can, uh, that, that a person reveals himself or herself. And so if you really want to get the yes to the essence of a character in a story, you put that character in a situation where the mask that we wear falls off. Hmm. But that, that, that happens in life all the time, too. Hmm. You know, those extreme moments, people reveal themselves hmm. in ways that may surprise us, may not. You see, so far you've mentioned, you know, common punishment. You've mentioned O'Connor. Do you do you read? I mean, do you? I, I don't, I was just going to ask a kind of silly question, but do you, do you like to read? Um, I mean, you mentioned O'Connor. Do you like to read lighter things as well? <laughs> yeah, I like I humor. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I. Not that you're reading, you know, the next, the newest like beach reader or whatever, but. Yeah. Well, I, I like to read. Um, let's see. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to give that impression. I'm just reading uh, genius literature all the time, but uh I enjoy really good comic writers. Anthony Burgess wrote Clockwork mm. Orange. Yeah, yeah. But he, he can be a hilarious writer. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, that kind of crazy, uh, kind of demented uh, sensibility. Uh, but, you know, a lot of my nonfiction can be about, you know, just funnier things. Or yeah, yeah. To yeah. be interesting things. Nature, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. as you were getting into writing that, who were the – who are the writers that you were turning to as your sort of guiding lights? I mean, obviously, I'm sure some of the ones we've mentioned already, but, you know, or, or maybe another way of asking it is when you were starting out and you were running up against those moments where you didn't know what sentence was going to come next, you didn't know, call it writer's block or whatever you want to call it. Who were you turning to for inspiration or f- to imitate or to to model, model your work uh, after? All of the above. I mean, it, yeah. it's so funny. I can remember I, I'd be reading Hemingway one week and all my sentences would be about five words long. And then I'd <laughs> talk to her and they'd go off for a period. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can remember Kurt Vonnegut and then starting to do the kind of thing he does with irony and wit. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, but as I tell my students, that's how you find your own voice. Yeah. Um, how long did that take for you? 
Oh, it took probably, I didn't start writing till I was in college. So I was probably 18, 19, probably 18. And uh, I wrote a, a pretty good story when I was about 21. And then I just went, I went to graduate school. And I think it, uh, and I, I tell my students this, I, I was reading so analytically because I, I didn't do, get an MFA, just an MA, that I was seeing literature in a way a scholar does, which is very commendable. But it was destroying, you know, the way that I was too self-conscious. Yeah. It was really after I got out of graduate school and and I kind of went back and I kind of forgot all the analytical things. And uh, yeah, and just kind of got back to that. You know, I think writing is takes place. The writing like reading in a waking dream. And I had to get back to that place where that part of me that was self-conscious, analytical, went away, and I could just kind of enter that state where where it happens. Mm. So when you're talking about being self-conscious, are you talking about being trying being self-conscious of the formal elements of writing or self-conscious of your own anxieties, your own how, how, what do you mean by that exactly? In terms I, I think of I would, when you yeah, sit down I think to I write. Was, yeah, I think I, I was almost imposing certain things I felt like needed to be in a story. Mm. For instance, maybe I need a symbol, which is a word mm. now I, I really dislike. Uh, mm. uh, I like resonance, you know. But, um, you know, the idea that I could structure a story from the beginning to the end, the way I might break apart a story if I were reading it as a scholar, and I just had to forget all that. And, and, and you know, now when I start a novel or a story, I, I really have very little idea where it's going. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll start with an image. And mm. uh, sometimes I think I might know a little bit. But when I wrote Serena, the only thing I had was I, I had a, an image that just stayed in my head of a woman on horseback. Mm. And I knew someone was looking at her. with, uh, and, and it just kind of mm. opened up from there. But it wasn't like I sat down. I said, "Yeah, I'm gonna write a book about 1930s, and I'm gonna, you know, have this person be here." Do you? Do you, so? Is it? Is it always that way? That you ever like read something in a history book and think, you know, what I would like to write a novel about, you know, a cotton mill in Concord in 1938 or whatever, and then then you go from there. Or is that does does that well, kind yeah, of process? Well, sometimes those things you? can inspire it. Uh, right. I mean, okay. essentially, when I, when I wrote Serena, which is about the creation of the Smoky Mountains Park, I'd been reading a lot about that for several years, mm, mm-hmm. not consciously, but right. almost like once that image came of that woman on horseback, I had a sense. Okay, this is going to be sometime in the early 20th century. And I kind of made that connection. So I'm sure the background reading, you know, I'm what, yeah, a lot of times what I'm reading, I've always been really disturbed by uh, what we were talking about earlier, uh, massacres by people who know each other. And uh, that that to me is so frightening uh, that humans can, the veneer is that thin. So when I wrote The World Made Straight, a lot of that uh, maybe obsessiveness with that particular aspect of human life ultimately found a way to come out you said a minute ago you don't you don't like the word symbol you said i think you said you prefer the, the word the idea the word or idea of a resonance what do you what do yeah, you mean resonance. by that what's well, the difference I, I think for me a symbol sometimes feels like something like a stamp on the book it's almost imposed mm. um uh, I think a resonance, at least the way I see it, is that it's something that kind of grows organically out of the book and it's there. And maybe as I'm working on drafts, uh, I might realize, well, wow, you know, this really has a, uh, 
significance. But well, uh, you know, but it, but also just something like uh, when I, I wanted to name a villain in Serena, I was really looking for the right name, and uh, I came up with uh, finally I, I was just driving on a back road and I saw a, 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 a mailbox with Galloway. I thought, wow, that's perfect. You know, gallows, you know, uh, you know, very sinister. But also it was very, it's a common, it's, it's a name you'd find in Western North Carolina. Yeah, yeah it's still true. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to read that on a symbolic level. Uh, but I, I hope it kind of had a resonance to it. Mm. If you are, as a writer, do you, so you, so you don't, you don't worry about, it doesn't bother you if someone doesn't make that connection. You don't feel like you haven't done your job. It's just you know, you're hoping that there's kind of an essence of that name that's, you know, kind of imbued into the story. Yeah. And I, and I think that in a way it would be a compliment if readers don't notice Hmm. because that way, you know, it's not a glaring, it's not like, you know, I've got a neon sign that says symbol alert. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's there. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are things I do that I I think it's just having faith that the audience is going, your readership is going to, uh, a lot of times they're going to get it even when they don't realize it. Uh, they're, I mean, for instance, in um, in the Valley, uh, the novella of my last book, mm-hmm. um, every sentence the loggers speak is in iambic pentameter. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, most of my readers probably don't get that. I mean, in the sense that you know they they're they're scanning the lines, yeah. but their ears getting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it they're noticing they're noticing there's something going on in that language. That they would get. Yeah, yeah. They're not necessarily giving a name to it, right? But yeah. So is that is that inspired by Shakespeare? Yeah, yeah. I, I go back to Shakespeare more than any other writer. What's your favorite place? Uh, Macbeth is my favorite. Okay. Uh, I love that. Uh, I love uh, Henry the Fourth. Um, I love. Uh, oh, wow. I mean, I love them all. Hamlet. <laughs> But uh, I guess it's about two and a half years ago. I went back and read all of them. Uh, well, I, the ones that are kind of you know the the attributions a little unclear, but right. right. But I I, I I just don't know how anybody could be that good. I really don't. Uh, I, I mean, it, I with most writers, I can say, well, I, I think I could do this at least a little while. You know, I, maybe I could do a paragraph. Yeah. That was <laughs> up against Faulkner. But uh, I just can't do that with Shakespeare. I mean, uh, you ever tried your hand at writing a play? No, but but uh, I would. I tried to use aspects of uh, of the play in uh, Serena and in One Foot in Eden. Uh, mm. Serena, particularly with a chorus mm. in uh, Serena, the, I let the loggers be the chorus, and actually mm. in Valley. So I, I, I'm using okay. aspects of that um, in One Foot in Eden. Uh, you know, it's almost like. Um, you know, I have the characters come on stage, yeah, uh, and 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 you know, do a monologue, dramatic monologue, and then the you know the the sheriff, and then the the wife, and yeah, uh, well, like a play within a play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even a little chorus at the end. So mm. I I, I kind of like you know doing those things, and I, I hope they're not you know I think yeah, well, like, heavy handed, but but it's there. Yeah. Okay. So so we've been kind of doing a little bit of meta conversation so given that we've been doing that what are some of your books on writing some of your favorite books on writing uh my friend george singleton uh who lives in south carolina has a really good book uh on writing and i never can remember the name because it's really long but uh it's it's, it's george a, singleton though yeah 
if Mad Men, and, and it just goes on, and it's really good. I think the Stephen King book is really good on writing. I think those are my two favorite. And what I don't like about probably most of the books I see on writing is they, they're doing the very thing I was talking about that I had to get away from, that kind of analytical, self-conscious thing. You know, it's almost as if sometimes it's like they're dissecting a frog. Hmm. And I think once you start doing that, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I mean, different. Maybe that helps a lot of writers. I don't know. But I, I find that those books don't uh, inspire me the way uh, book, books such as George Singleton's. Hmm. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I would like to, I would love, you know, you mentioned Dostoevsky. I'd love to know what role the the classics play in your reading life. We've talked about Dostoevsky and Shakespeare, um, but let's, let's call it classics, you know, 19th century and previous. So what are some of the ones that you find yourself returning to uh, the most other than Shakespeare and Dostoevsky since we've already yeah, mentioned Okay. This? Well, yeah, those both are really important, particularly. Yeah. Um, I go back to Faulkner a lot. Um, uh, there's a there's a, a French writer from the early 19th century I really admire John Juno. Uh, he's good. Um, 19th century Melville Moby Dick. You know, as much as I love Faulkner, if I had to pick one great novel by an American, I'd probably go with Moby Dick. Why is that? Uh, because it's I think the most ambitious and it's probably the most realized. I mean, that, mm. that book is just. So many memorable characters. Yeah. Uh, the the Shakespearean writing. I mean, he really. I think he achieves a pitch in mm. that book. Uh, uh, just yeah, a great story. Uh, but I, I find that I'm endlessly delighted when I go mm. back and reread it. Uh, mm. So yeah, I think that he, he's very important. Uh, Chekhov for short stories. Uh, certainly mm. a writer I go back to. Uh, and uh, I love, you know, Renaissance poetry, uh, John Donne, uh, people like that. Keats is a poet I go back to a lot. I uh, really, really love his work. I love his letters, Hopkins. I read a lot of poetry. Uh, so I have a question about that then. Yeah. So you're talking about Keats and Hopkins and Renaissance poetry. You're talking about Shakespeare. Do you, these are obviously uh, ways of writing that are influencing your work, even if just through subconscious. Um, do you, how do I, how do I want to put this? Do you in any way see yourself as trying to take those influences, that language, and then mesh it, combine it with the language and storytelling that is from this place that you live in? Like, do you see your goal as a writer to take this tradition that you love mm -hmm. and then find a way to help pass that on through or, or, allow or maybe even just to allow where you come from to participate in that same tradition yeah i mean uh i think yeah i'm not saying how well i do it uh <laughs> yeah you know i'm just I, I think that i'm always aware of those writers and um very often you know i will sometimes uh, i enjoy evoking them in, in, in mm -hmm. different ways uh uh you know quote for um uh, the Risen uh, comes from Dostoevsky. Uh, mm. so when I was writing that book, I had a sense of him, but also other books that dealt yeah. with you know, two brothers. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think any, probably most writers do this. I don't think that maybe not as consciously, but, but you know, we, that's how we learn to write. We, we take all these influences 
uh, the same way a really good musician would today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, one last question. You got time? Yeah. Let's say you're uh, stranded on the top of a, a mountain. <laughs> you went for a hike, but you knew you were going to get stranded. Just, just go with me on the scenario here. Okay, okay. Uh, and you have a backpack. You could fit four books in it. We'll call it like a Mount Rushmore of, of books. Uh, we'll, let's stick with fiction. Well, fiction or poetry. Um, and you're, you're, you're going to be there for about two weeks. You have enough food to survive for two weeks. You're going to be by yourself until that helicopter comes down out of the clouds and whisks you away to safety. So for those two weeks, what would you, what would you want to have with you to read? Okay. Well, if you gave me the collected plays by Shakespeare, that'd be enough. (laughs) Okay. All right. I mean, really, uh, but I think if I had to do that, the way you're talking, uh, this guy describing it, wow, that would be a Moby Dick would certainly probably be one. Uh, maybe the sound of the fury uh, would be one. Wow. Gosh, what, what, a, what a great question and so unanswerable. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's the best, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what makes it fun. Um, you know, maybe something lighter like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter Thompson. You know, just to kind of <laughs> <laughs> break the despair. Lighter, <laughs> in a, lighter in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah you'll laugh my, sometimes. Yeah, to my sick sensibility. It's yeah, funny. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was chatting with... Uh, Jess Walter, I don't know if you know, yeah, if you've read anything yeah. about him. And he was talking about how he loves books. He, he he started as a journalist. And so he finds, he's fascinated by by books written by journalists, as opposed to, he was kind of comparing that to the sort of MFA track. Yeah. Like they yeah. become kind of, they tend, tend to produce different sorts of writers. And so Hunter yeah. S. Thompson, I think, you know, that was, that's an example of one that he was mentioning. Did you, do you, you said you got an MA, you didn't go the MFA track, but you're teaching in college. You, you know, you're teaching writing and literature and things like that. Yeah. Do you find that there, that you are in lockstep with sort of the way writing is taught at MFAs right now? I mean, do you, I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about what an MFA should be like and what a writer's group should be like and on all those, you know, different kinds of things. So I'm curious to know in your experience as a writer, having come from, having not come up through the MFA mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. but teaching in the university level, what are, what are your thoughts on, on writing instruction and the way it's done now? Well, I don't teach in an MFA program. So, I, you know, my, yeah. what I'm, I'm, we don't have one at Western, but right. Uh, right. I, I think it's the, the person, the individual has to decide what's best for uh, him or her. Uh, and I, for instance, my daughter has an MFA from Rutgers and I think that was really valuable to her. Mm-hmm. But I, also for me, I think getting a straight MA in literature was was the best thing I could have done, and and maybe that's because I'm a little I was a little later developing, but uh, uh, it was a great degree, and we had a, a incredible uh, reading list. It was actually taken. It was for a PhD program at Georgia. I was at Clemson, but I was reading all of these books, and I think for me at that time, I needed to be reading other people. Mm. So I think it's individual, but uh, I, I I don't think you know the idea that you have to have an MFA. I think the main thing is you, you're going. It's going to be the reading that's going to get you there. I think mm-hmm. you know, you, and you're going to do that if you do it. You know, the great thing about a good MFA teacher is going to show you books and and uh, yeah. so you know, I'm, I'm 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 I think it just comes down to individual whether that's 
what you need or not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, what's the last book that you read that surprised you? This is the last question. Then I'll let you go. Get back to your, yeah. back to your day. Uh, well, I had one that surprised me and I won't give the name of it because I'm convinced it's going to win a major award. <laughs> you don't want to be prophetic. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I, it is so poorly written. I actually read a paragraph to my students and they started laughing. Uh, oh, it surprised you in a negative way because you think yeah, it, in a negative it, way. Yeah. But yeah. it's going I to mean, win the award. Okay. Because it's gotten so much attention and so many, I, 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 and I went back after I read it. I, I don't like to read the reviews beforehand because I don't want to prejudice myself, you know, against the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I was really uh, surprised. Actually, I'll tell you the book that just, and actually, I've got it. I just finished it a couple of weeks ago. I'll show it to you. Do, do you know this guy, Lee Durkee? I do not. The Last Taxi yeah. Driver? Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, he's, he lives in Oxford, Mississippi. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've i never read him. And a friend, uh, actually, Richard Howarth at uh, uh, Square Books, uh, yeah. said, you need to read this guy. And he sent me the book. And, uh, man... That that's probably the latest book that I read that really, really uh, amazed me. Oh, really. I love that. And, I love and, and how 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 I missed it. You know, yeah. it came out about ten years ago. Yeah. Okay. Last taxi driver. What's the name of the author again? Lee Durkee. Yeah. Lee Durkee. Okay. D U R K E E. And if, right. if you like that kind of offbeat, Barry Hannah, Hunter Thompson. Yeah. You know that kind of a little bit crazy. Yeah, kind of like a Charles Portis type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's he's he's in that vein, but he's got okay. his own course. But yeah, that's a that's a good one. All right, great. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the time, and I'll let you get back to your day. But this was a lot of fun, and appreciate well, you coming on the first episode. Yeah, and I, I look forward to visiting your store. That'll be awesome. Maybe we can do a signing or something sometime. That'd be great. Well, that was Ron Rash. Thanks so much to Mr. Rash for coming on the podcast and being our first guest here on Bibliography. I think all of our to-be-read lists grew a little bit this week. Thanks to you for listening. Please be sure to tell your friends about the show in whatever form you'd like to do that. We certainly do appreciate it. For all of us here at Goldberry Books, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading.